Kalina, and you're listening to Subject ACT, Canberra's local current affairs program on Community Radio 2XX FM 98.3. Today, we're talking to Dr. Helen Maynard Casely, a scientist who studies ice moons, which is about as cool as it sounds. So I might just start off by asking sort of your name and your position and uh, what you do in the field, basically. Okay. Um, so my name's Helen Maynard Casely, and I work as an instrument scientist at ANSTO, which is the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization. And sort of how I fit into planetary science that, um, and indeed science in general is that I run an instrument, which um, is one of 13 that are off our only nuclear reactor down here in Sydney and um, that instrument is able to look at materials. My one looks at it from an atomistic point of view so I'm, I'm all about where the atoms are in materials but some of my colleagues a lot of look at different um, length scales for instance like some look at molecules and some are looking at even tinier things like vibrations of atoms. So we're quite a multi multidisciplinary um, organisation. Um, and then the way I fit into that as planetary science is that I use my instrument to study the surfaces and interiors of, of planets, principally icy moons at the moment, but I have done a little bit of Mars work as well. I guess my first question from that is, how do you actually study atoms? Is it the effects that they have on the rest of the effects that they have on other things? Or is it, um, I understand that we, I'm going to edit out a lot of these like stupid trying to phrase the question, questions. Basically, how do you actually study atoms? I guess is my yeah, question. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's a great question. So for me, um, everything always has to be a crystalline solid. It has to be a solid with long range order. And the good thing for me is that most of the solids that we encounter um, on, especially in a natural system, so are crystalline solids. They have this um, long range repeating unit of atoms. So on the Earth, most of we have obviously big suite of different rocks that basically makes up everything we stand on but the rocks themselves are actually composed of minerals and what minerals are are, are specific um, compositions of, of that um, so the great thing about crystalline materials is that um, you can study them with diffraction and what that means is that we um, shine a beam of, 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 of light, of, we call it light but it's just light in the sense of the electromagnetic spectrum so um, principally we use x-rays or neutrons um, and we shine those at, and because the wavelength of the x-rays and the neutrons that we use are is around um, 1 times 10 to the minus 10 of a meter which so which we call an Armstrong uh, one Armstrong is 1 times 10 to the minus 10 um, of a meter but that is about the distance between oxygen and hydrogen in water. And because our wavelength of, that we're using is around the same as the distance between atoms in crystalline, in crystalline materials, so things like ice, for instance, where, where you get that's the distance between your oxygen and your hydrogen, you get a, um, an interference effect. It's like um, the, the really great way you can have a visualizing it is if you throw two, um, two stones into a pond and it's nice clear pond to begin with and you get two ripples but those ripples will actually um interfere with each other and you get lines coming through i, I encourage anybody next time they're at a pond and mind the ducks but um, throw a couple of stones in and see how the ripples interact every time we throw x-rays or neutrons at our materials all the atoms start 
generating a lot of um, uh, ripples. But those ripples will constructively and deconstructively interfere with each other so that we end up with a pattern coming out, a diffraction pattern. And uh, this is something that was actually pioneered by uh, an Australian-born researcher, um, a, a guy named uh, Bragg. And he was the first person to work out how to take that pattern and then to work out back where the atoms are in the material. And um, that's what we're doing pretty much 100 hundred years later just with more powerful and are you using this um this technique and this technology to study icy planets so yeah so what i'm doing is that i'm taking and being informed by nasa missions where they usually tell us something about the chemistry so when it comes to surfaces of the ice um we we have never got a sample there we've not dug it up and bring it brought it back we haven't I should say, haven't even done that for Mars yet. But what we can do and what these space missions, they look at the reflected light off of the surf. Now, that gives an idea of the chemistry that's there. So that's great. But we, if we want to interpret the geological um, features that we're seeing, like the, 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 the shift, the mountains, the crack, Europa sees all sorts of things like this. For instance, Europa, which is one of the big moons of, um, of, of Jupiter. Then we need to know more about what the materials actually are and how strong they are and how they can actually deform to make these materials. So with that, knowing the chemistry is only the first stage. We next need to know the crystalline structure. We need to know the structure of these materials. So then what I do is I take the information that the NASA mission are giving me. So for instance, on Europa, we think the surface we know is ice. Ice actually up to 80% dirt there's there's a big other material there that we we don't quite know what it is there's two big theories one is that it's sulfuric acid the sulfur is coming from europa has a sister moon that orbits inside of it called io very famous for its big sulfur volcanoes and doesn't have much in atmosphere so the sulfur could escape and actually find its way hitting onto europa this is how the theory goes the other theory is that it's um materials salt so materials like magnesium sulfate um, on Earth, we know that as epsomite. This is stuff that may be coming from the ocean. So they're quite simple materials to, to get hold of, sulfuric acid and magnesium sulfate. And so what I've been doing is mixing up solutions. Um, I started with just water and sulfuric acid and uh, cooling them down, Europa temperatures. So a sunny day on Europa is around minus 150 degrees C. You think Canberra's cold. Um, then I'm seeing what's crystallizing out. What what um, There are materials that we call hydrates because they have water in the structure. And uh, and by doing that, I found a new hydrate, for instance, um, which is kind of cool and can help us interpret what's going on the surface of Europe. So that's what I'm doing. I'm sort of recreating the chemistry and the condition from these ice in the lab and then using this diffraction to work out what the materials actually are. That's really cool. Like, I didn't, like... <laughs> That's one of the things I've always been been curious about because I feel like uh, in in terms of my science education, I had very, very basic up until the end of high school mm-hmm. and then kind of what I've seen post that as an adult. And I've always missed that bit of how do you test this? You you haven't gone to Saturn. You haven't gone to, mm-hmm. to any of those moons. Yep. What other um, techniques do you use to, to simulate the conditions on these planets? Or is that the main one? Um, so that's mainly, yeah, through temperature. And I'm very lucky, especially um, with the nu- with where I am right now in the neutron science, too, is that neutrons weren't the sort of the reason that people use neutron diffraction traditionally is more for looking at magnetism because um, neutrons can actually see the magnetic moment of an atom, which is, which is really cool. 
so you can actually see magnetic structure and things like that. And so it's been the domain mainly, I, I mean, I have a physics background, but there's been a lot of very, very interesting physics work on these magnetism. And, and a lot of having equipment that could go really, really cold. So we have equipment here that can go to what we call dilution temperatures. So that's below one Kelvin. So that's below minus uh, 272 degrees C. That's towards absolute zero. So, and that's because at that point, really, you know, um, best way to describe it, everything slows down and you see the, 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 the atoms in their sort of native state and you can sort of really get the, behind all of their, their weirdness, as it were. Now, because we have a lot of equipment and expertise for going very cold, um, going to minus 150 degrees C is sort of routine <laughs> for us. Where it isn't necessarily routine for other labs. We have this very big, um, it's a big orange cryostat, which can go down to those temperatures without any problem, can move around um, temperatures. So that that's quite um, straightforward. The other sort of condition that I sort of specialise in stimulating is, is high pressure. Um, and so as soon as you start to dig below our feet and below into these icy moons, you will begin to put pressure just from the overriding weight of things above you. And pressure can do some very weird things to material. You just have to look at water ice. So we have freeze, our freezer ice, um, known as, is usually to people like me, actually call it um, hexagonal ice. Um, of course, you all know that because it makes lovely, beautiful hexagonal snowflakes. There are actually different ways that the ice molecule can pack depending on both temperature and pressure. There's actually 21 different forms of solid ice, depending on temperature and pressure. And a lot of them are thought to um, occur in the icy moons, in moons like less so um, Europa, a little bit smaller, but its system in Ganymede is much bigger. And so we think that there is uh, an ice in there that we call ice we, we're not very imaginative with the names they're all named versus when they were discovered so they're in a weird order but ice um, which is makes sort of what we call tetragonal crystal structure but what that means is it would have square snowflakes so um you get some very weird things happen um with pressure weirder i would say than with temperature so that's why i find it a very interesting thing to to work with and the way we apply that um we just make very very small samples and have um, very um tough anvils that are able to apply the pressure on um which which is kind of what i've been specializing in for a while um i guess my next question would why i mean a lot of this mm -hmm. um takes a lot of time, is very expensive. A lot of people are very disparaging mm -hmm. of, of space programs in general, saying that we should use the money for issues that we have mm -hmm. on this planet before we go and explore other ones. So why? I mean, it's an incredibly valid question, and it's one that all scientists should be asked very often. Um, for me, um, it's, it's sort of exploring um, sort of very fundamental things. From my point of view, um, it's, it's sort of criminal how little we don't know about the water molecule. It's, it's quite impressive. It's the simplest water molecule, but does the weirdest things in terms of this ice thing. And it's from from that fundamental, just advancing advancing our own knowledge. But also, I mean, be human, I believe, is to explore. And, um, and although we do, and many people do explore, um, and there is still much to do on the Earth. I mean, I think the bottom, I think we know more about the surface of Mars than we do on the bottom of the ocean. But there are all very interesting targets around for us to explore, and um, I think it would um, denying our own humanity not to go and explore. We also it brings up questions about our place in the universe as well, because these icy moons, so 
when I, um, of course, Europa is famous first moon that we realized probably had an, uh, a planet or a moon-wide ocean underneath the icy crust. Now, that ocean is actually a very nice place to be. It's going to be quite warm around room temperature, quite salt, goes all the way down to what we think is down to the rock, uh, a rocky mantle. So there's a lot of potential nutrients there for, for the solution for the ocean to pick up. It, it is one of the best places that we have that life could arise. Probably, uh, personally, I believe more so than the surface of Mars, which is actually quite a harsh environment. And so I think that, that we'd be very silly not to want to try and find other sources of life that may have arised separately to us. And the other great thing about these icy moons is that we've now realised, and now the term for them in, in NASA is ocean worlds, because we've realised that this, this ocean underneath an icy crust is almost a com common occurrence. We believe that Ganymede has one. We believe that Titan, which is the largest moon of Saturn, has one. And more recently, we now think that Pluto might have one. So um, there's a lot of potential places where life could exist. And I, and I think that it would be very deny-inferring. And this, but then this is separate to all the technology that we, that we push when we're doing these things. So I know at the moment, Australia has just agreed Data Space Agency are very much hope that they have a planetary program within that because it's very noticeable that all the countries that have a space agency also have a planetary program because they wreck the um, technological um, push that you get from trying to do these very hard explorations and very hard observations um, that, that will have implications elsewhere and just sort of building up the technology for everybody. So um, I'm quite passionate that... that, that that what we do in planetary science does benefit everybody. Uh, I've, I understand that one of the possible benefits of this kind of planetary exploration is the possibility of, of mining or, or even settling, if Elon Musk gets his way, <laughs> on uh, other planetary bodies. How oh. likely do you think either of those options are? I think for the ice, it's probably very unlikely. I think um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the actual surfaces of the icy moons are not particularly nice place. The um, the well, especially the Jupiter ones, because the Jupiter's magnetic field is very big and actually causes quite a, a harsh radiation environment on the surface. I read a paper once where someone suggested that Callisto, which is the the last of the sisters of Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, um being of that bit further out would be reasonable place to live but would still be quite a harsh place to be obviously with titan everyone's got quite excited because it's quite a hydrocarbon rich moon um there's it has um the largest moon of 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 Saturn and it's now famous because it's the first body other than our own to have liquid bodies on the surface so but these aren't because it's so cold this is not water this is methane and ethane my personal hope is that by the time we get there in any great shape and you know with lots of things that will be beyond a hydrocarbon economy that we will have moved on to um, bigger and better things by then however saying that I used to be quite dubious about the fact of of mining in terms of asteroids that is feasible than the idea of meaning mining asteroids and my reticence was because the asteroids you have to think about are the they're like of the solar system they're, they're the, the leftover bits from from making of our planet and in order to understand our planet, our own planet as well as we can we need to know more about the asteroids and it 
seemed very silly to just see them in a sort of commercial way. I now have revised that because I can actually see how knowing more about them and actually they would be a potential place for us finding the, the rarer metals and, and things like platinum and titanium, things that will run out eventually on Earth, as, especially as we move on with technology. Um, we, we're probably going to need those sorts of things more. So I think it's a very viable thing that we can do. Um, and of course, you know, it, it could also benefit duration at the same time. So I'm sort of less reticent about the idea of asteroid mining. And I think it's something we definitely have the technological capability to do. There's already been, obviously, the Rosetta mission that's visited a comet. So comets are completely different, I should say. Um, but no, what I mean to talk about is uh, the Japanese mission of Hayabusa, which has visited an asteroid, actually picked up a bit of that asteroid and brought it back to Earth. In, in fact, actually brought it back and um, landed, in inverted commas, in Australia. And now there's a second mission, Hayabusa 2, which is going off to another asteroid to do it. So it shows you that we already have the technology to go to an asteroid, pick a bit up, and bring it back to Earth. I mean, admittedly, that was a very small bit, but if we put a lot more effort into it, it's a very viable thing and, and a potentially good um, source of resources for us. And now it's time for a little bit of music, and today we have I and Love and You by the Evett Brothers. Load the car and write the notes Grab your bag and grab your coat Tell the ones that need to know We are headed north One foot in, one foot back But it don't pay to live like that So I cut the ties and I jump the tracks For never to return Brooklyn, bro. 
three words that became hard to say I and love and you What do you That was I and Love and You by the Everett Brothers. You said before that you think we're technologically um, prepared for this kind of endeavor. Do you mean like if we so desired we could send off a rocket and mine a planet or an asteroid tomorrow? Or are we still working our way towards that? I mean, yeah, you would have to work on the specific tools. But in terms of, I don't, you know, I don't see that many big humps in the way it, it's sort of in the same way that um there would also there would be challenges on the path but i don't think that there's much that we haven't developed through the various planetary missions. when i say we i'm talking about globally so east um european space agency the the nasa um even russian space agency and and the japanese space agency so i'm speaking in a very sort of idealistic view that on on earth we have the capability to do this um of course there are political challenges and that's probably bigger challenge to get across at this point rather than the technical technological challenge that said if there is um, a company that are rich enough and will and have bought enough technology and got hold of enough technology then i don't think there's too much stopping them right now to do that i had a question and then it got away from me as you were do you think are the biggest hurdles for us understanding more about about 
um, but the universe in general and icy planets and moons specifically? Ooh, well, at the very moment, we have a big hurdle in that we don't really have anything in the outer solar system studying. Um, so last said goodbye to Cassini. Was it last month? Yeah, it was last mm. month, wasn't it? It seems so raw, <laughs> so close. Um, we have nothing being built to go back out to that outer solar system. So at the moment, the only thing we have, we have New Horizons, which is obviously shot past Pluto and is going to visit another Kuiper Belt object 2019, I believe. We Are have we still the- getting um, results? from New Horizons or is that um, way past? Yeah, oh, oh no no so they've got all the results from Pluto that, so the way that they did the flyby that they basically decided that we're just going to watch everything we can and then cram all the data onto its hard drive and then to because the internet connection between us and, and Pluto is quite slow it took it about um, 18 months to transmit all of the data it took back so it was a very clever strategy making the most of what they could get from the flyby they sent back a few key images you know to put on time magazine and things like that which was just wonderful bit of marketing just absolutely brilliant strategy they really hit the nail on the head there and got everybody interested in pluto just just absolutely brilliant but then all of the really detailed data came back over the next 18 months they're now planning a stratosphere sort of thing when they fly by this next Kuiper Belt object. So 2019, they'll fly by and then probably spend, it'll probably be a bit longer because it's that bit further out and then, um, at least maybe a year and a half sending back the data. And it is important to say how important, um, um, well, um, the Deep Space Network, which is just outside Canberra, is to that, that they're, they're part of the monitoring and keeping an eye on, on those missions as they go and, and, and uplinking or downlinking the data from these space missions. But in terms of the outer system, I mean, that's the very outer. Nothing in the Saturn system at the moment. Jupiter, we have the um, we have Juno, which is there. So Juno is very much focused to look at Jupiter itself as a planet. It's not doing any observations, barring a couple of pretty pictures of Europa and Callisto and Ganymede. Um, so we have nothing actually studying those ice at the moment. And that's nothing compared to Uranus and Neptune, where we've literally only had two flyby missions. So we know less. And now they were in the late 80s and early 90s. So the technology was good. We know less about those planets and their moons than we do about Pluto now. We're placed to be. There isn't any missions late launch anytime soon. And it takes, you know, to get to Saturn, it takes seven years. So it's going to be a long time before we get any more data on the outer solar system. So I think that that's a big hurdle right to understanding more. That said, the astronomers are doing great guns. And they're doing really, really good at more, more observations from Earth. That what they can do in terms of resolving on Europa is pretty impressive. I saw a very good presentation where, where they actually can see, well, for instance, um, see like the volcanoes on, on, on Io from Earth. And um, big result from Europa a couple of years ago now was that you can see gazers coming off the surface of it. And that actually came from the Hubble Space Telescope. So we are doing a lot of good observations from Earth or from Earth orb, but that's nothing compared to actually getting there and flying by them and then eventually hopingly landing on them and things like that. So that right now is, is a big hurdle, I would say trying to think of any others i mean the getting more human exploration i think is the big hurdle there is 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 is, is keeping humans alive for long enough to go and explore these things um that i think is probably the biggest hurdle but 
maybe we don't need to. Maybe we should just concentrate on robotic missions. I don't know. Well, we can do what we've been doing, a bit of both. I might just ask you before before we wrap this up, how did you get into this? Yeah, so I actually have an undergraduate degree in planetary science. So I was very lucky, probably tell from my accent, I'm from the UK. And I knew that I wanted to study volcanoes from quite early on from about 13 or so and I got really into geosciences and things like that but I also enjoyed physics quite a lot and when it came to picking university I mainly picked geophysics degrees but there were two places I only applied to one of them in the UK where you could do planetary science at the time I applied I wasn't so keen about going to London but the course did sound pretty fantastic so that's what I ended up doing and it was sort of half in geosciences and half in physics so I did a lot of astronomy and then I did a lot of of mineralogy and things like that and it was only towards the end of it that that I learned about minerals and diffraction and and crystalline stuff and I and I remember thinking you know there was a there was an opening for me because you go through university a lot of time being taught the way you know what people have discovered and it's sometimes hard to realize that there's anything left to do for you to do but that one I sort of got an inkling of oh there does seem to be stuff to do maybe we don't know all the materials or we need to characterize them better and I my master's year was very fortunate enough to visit a big neutron facility in the UK and that just blew my mind it was a big science um, big instruments gang plants it, it looks a bit like a James Bond baddie layer for want of a better term for it you know gang planks and ladders and things like that and things going push noises and stuff and there's all these different instruments all this different science going on and I think at that point I was pretty captivated that that's what I wanted to work in so um, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do a PhD in physics so I actually moved up to Scotland for that but at the end of that I really wanted to go and work in a um, what I call a central facility one of these big synchrotrons or neutron facilities and um, there was a job advertised in in Melbourne in the Australian synchrotron and that's how I ended up in Australia and as part of that I've just um sort of helping other scientists to use these facilities but 30% of my job is also doing my own research which which I've been able to do that's fantastic no worries (laughs) great well thank you for that that concludes our discussion with Dr. Helen Maynard Casely. Join us each weekday, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 2XX FM 98.3, Subject ACT. Stay tuned for more people-powered radio. I'm Carolyn. Have a great day.